Hey, let's look at Acts chapter 25. Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. And uh, we're going to cover some ground this morning, verses 1 through 22. You know, as I was reading through this uh, passage this week, and uh, really even before then, uh, there's so many different things that are happening in here. This is a historical narrative. Remember, Luke wrote this uh, because he wanted to give an account for what was happening in the early church. And he wanted it to be accurate. He's a physician, so he's very methodical in it, very systematic. Uh, This particular passage has got... Uh, a lot of historical stuff to it. And so I was reading through it and I thought, well, I mean, it's, it is the word of God, right? We know that the word of God is the word of God. But I, I kind of got to confess to you, I wasn't really terribly excited about this passage. I thought, oh, how are we going to make this applicable? How, how's this going to be something that really resonates with God's people? Paul's in jail. He's getting accused again. He appeals to Caesar. Festus shirks his duty and says, fine, to Caesar you're going to go. And then Festus whines and complains to King Agrippa. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the bolts of it. And, and the more I read through it, the more I began to see some things in the background that I think are phenomenal. Things that I needed to hear. Things that I was going, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, we just sang trust and obey. We, we sang blessed be the name, Right? We talk about all the time as believers, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter whether the darkness is closing in, no matter what we go through, no matter what issues we face, no matter what the challenges of the day are culturally or even to the degree in our families and our relationships, all of that, we trust God. That's what we say. We love to say that. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? Let's unlock this passage a little bit because I think there's something in this that is absolutely pertinent to our day and to our time. Acts 25, there's three things we're going to look at. He works, the Lord works in spite of our enemies. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, in spite of people that are against us, in spite of people that are against grace and, and against all the different factors of what Christianity truly is, about God works in spite of enemies. God works in spite uh, of, of even people that are uh, contrary to us in the realm of, of uh, civil governments. He works through our authorities. And he also works through our testimony. He works through our lives. And when people begin to observe our lives, they begin to see what it is that uh, is happening, that's real, that's tangible, even in the midst of difficulties. It's amazing what people notice, what people recognize. God works through our testimony. The Lord is constantly working for our good and his glory. Catch that. Do we really believe that? That the Lord is constantly, always, without fail, never sleeping, never slumbering, infinitely strong. Infinitely available to every one of us individually within the unique set of circumstances that he knows that we're walking through. He's always working for our good. And he's always working for his glory. That's amazing. We serve a big God, folks. The question is, do we really believe that? Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good. 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He, he doesn't say that we're going to go through good things all the time. He says, in effect, that he is going to cause all things to work together for good. You may have gone through difficult circumstances. You may be facing something right now that's difficult. You may be able to look back and see all the difficult, whatever. The point of the matter is, is no matter what we go through, we have a promise that God is always working for our good. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, I love this verse because it's a ministry verse. And it's the intention of what true ministry is really all about. He says, for from him, that means out of him. And through him, that means literally that which is from him is also sustained by him. And why does it occur? It's for him. From him, through him, and to him. Anything that's out of God... He sustains, and anything that's from him, that's out of him, that he is sustaining, is for his glory. Paul concludes by saying, to him be the glory forever. Amen. See, ministry, how we serve, needs to come from him first, and then we can trust him to sustain it, and we can trust him with the fruit of what it's going to look like, the results, because it's for his glory. We don't have to worry about the results. We don't have to worry about the fruit. What we need to be worried about, as he says in John 15, is are we abiding in him? Are we connected to him? So we have two wonderful promises here that I think you're going to see in Acts chapter 25 where he makes it clear in the midst of this narrative historically of what's happening to the Apostle Paul that God is constantly working for our good and for his glory. Start in verse 1 of Acts 25. He works in spite of our enemies. Look at this. Festus then, having arrived, am I dating myself when I talk about gun smoke? (laughs) Do you love gun smoke? I got, this has nothing to do with anything. I, I I got sick one time and I was so tired of TV and the normal nonsense that's really on that I started looking for some channels, and they were the older channels, and they had all the black and white stuff of gun smoke. And I got hooked. I went on like a gun smoke binge. And then, I, and then I got Jonathan connected to it, and Steph and I started watching it. And one of our favorite characters, right, <laughs> is Festus. Festus, I mean, classic. He's like the Barney Fife of Westerns. I mean, all right, let's get back to this. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, and at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Now, understand what's going on. Festus is replacing Felix. 
Felix has been the governor. Paul was rescued by Lysias, the commander in Jerusalem, brought to Caesarea, put under trial with Felix. Felix couldn't find anything wrong with him, and as a favor to the Jews, left Paul in, in custody, right? He was in house arrest, in effect, at the governor's mansion. He was able to have people come to his house. He was able to write. He was still effective in the ministry that God had for him as he encouraged the churches. And in the midst of this, there's a changing of the guard, so to speak. And Festus comes along the scene. Folks, understand something. Festus is not a godly man. Festus is not somebody that we would have looked to and said, all right, he's one of our leaders. I mean, this guy is just like Felix. He's gotten to a position of power here through all kinds of different manipulative ways. And what does he do? As soon as he begins to take on this position, this role, he goes immediately to Jerusalem because this is part of the province. And he wants to make sure that he gleans favor with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so he goes and he meets with the chief priests in verse 2 and the leading men of the Jews. And what is it that they immediately begin to talk to Festus about? Paul, are you serious? Let it go, right? Two years this guy's been under house arrest in Caesarea, and the chief priests cannot let this go. Notice something. You remember the last group of men that wanted to kill Paul? Was it the chief priests? Was it the leading men? Was it the authorities? Was it the council members? That was a group of 40-plus individuals that took a vow that they weren't going to eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. Evidently, they're dead. I don't know. Maybe they, I don't know what happened to them. We don't, historically, we don't know. I don't know what kind of vow it is that they took, but we're not told that. But the council now takes up this banner. The council now is trying to kill the Apostle Paul. And they're trying to manipulate Festus. They're trying to get around him. They're trying to take advantage of the fact that he's new. Now, we don't have this recorded for us, but we know that Lysias wrote a note. We know that Felix would have left some notes in terms of what was going on and some of the people that were key in order to get in touch with. We know that Festus knew that he needed to go to Jerusalem to meet with the council. And it may be that he had heard about the plot against Paul. He certainly, as you're going to see in this story, is concerned about what to do with the Apostle Paul because it's been two years that he's been in prison and no charges could be made against him that would stick. He's a Roman citizen. And so it takes on a heightened concern for Festus. But what's interesting now is that the council begins to try to manipulate this situation. They want... Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem in order to stand trial there, and on the way, they want to ambush him and kill him. Festus clearly has some wisdom in this, keeps Paul in Caesarea for trial, and I think we see in that how God is at work. Paul wasn't there. Think with me on this. Paul's in Caesarea. New changing of the guard. What does this mean? What's, where's this going to go? How's this going to look? How's this going to end up? Am I going to be released? The Lord had told him he was going to go to Rome in order to be a, a witness for the Lord. How's that going to happen? W- what are the circumstances that are going to get me there? 
Paul's not a part of the council meeting with Festus. And immediately, these council members are plotting his murder. And Paul has no say in what's taking place. Let me ask you something. When you, when you are walking the Christian life and you're walking with the Lord and you are trusting him and you are placing yourself under what you're hearing from the Lord, which is what obedience means, when you are sharing your testimony, perhaps with words, perhaps it's through the actions and the decisions that you make, do you have any control what people think and or what they're saying about you? No. Do you think God is at work there? Do you think God is looking out for you? Do you think that the Lord is going to take care of you? Do you think that the Lord is big enough to make sure that the circumstances will be for our good as well as for his glory? I think so. See, I think one of the beautiful stories behind the story here is how Paul lived out what he said. He trusted the Lord. And in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, false accusations, threats, murder, all the stuff, he continued to just proclaim the gospel of grace. Well, secondly, he works through the authorities. Clearly, we saw that with Festus. We'll see it even more. In verse 7, after Paul arrived... Remember, Festus has sat down on the tribunal. He's back in Caesarea. He wants the leading men of the Jews to come to Caesarea in order to have uh, Paul give his testimony for the charges to be brought against the apostle. It says, after Paul arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar." And then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you shall go. Fascinating. First of all, understand the viciousness of the attacks. Right? In verse 7, he makes it very clear the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Totally false charges saying things about the apostle that literally were not only against his character and his integrity, but ultimately as a leader within the church in order to discredit him, in order to tear down his role as an apostle, in order to tear down Christianity, the viciousness, all of it without proof, all of things without proof. Verse 8, Paul points out that they didn't have any proof that he didn't commit any of the things that they're saying. And he gives us three things specific that give us an indicator as to what the charges actually were all about. The first thing he says is against the law. I didn't do anything against the law of the Jews. I didn't do anything against the law. The second thing he says is against the temple. 
And if you remember, the reason he got here, the reason Lysias came in and stepped in and helped save him was because they accused him falsely of bringing a Gentile into the court where only the Jews were supposed to go in the temple. And so the mob began to, to raise up and they began to beat Paul and Lysias was told about it, took down 200 men to go get him, rescued him, and ultimately brought him to Caesarea. And Paul says, I, I didn't do anything against the temple. The charges that you have here can't stick because nobody can say I did these things. The third thing is against Caesar, which is equal to Roman rule. So three things that Paul has accused of him, right? The law, the temple, Caesar, or Roman rule. I want you to think about this for a second. When we're walking with the Lord, right, and we're trusting in the Lord, when we're growing in Christ, and God, through his word, is beginning to deepen us, to transform us, to renew our minds, and our activities begin to reflect that. Bible promises when you desire, anybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. It will probably fall into one of these three categories. It'll be an attack against you concerning grace. Concerning grace. It'll be an attack against you concerning religion, the temple, the way things have always been done, the way things are proved to be successful. And or it'll be an attack against you that you are a usurper of the law of the land, that you're not doing what the law of the land says that you are to do. Anybody think about gay marriage? How, how do we begin to deal with that? How do we begin to understand that? Why are we caught off guard by that? Grace, because we don't give anybody credit and pat them on the back for what they've done in the flesh, and we don't take credit for anything that we've done in the flesh because we understand by grace. It's not according to our works. It's not according to what we could do. It's not according to anything that we have the strength to accomplish. It's not our righteousness. It's not our strength. It's not our wisdom. It's God's. Religion, because religious systems are invested in building up themselves. And so when we begin to walk with God and we begin to, to know the Lord and begin to be transformed and renewed in our minds, all of a sudden the most important thing is the kingdom of God and it's knowing Christ. It's following him. It's not building up some kind of a system. It's not protecting that system. The law, God's law or man's law? God's law or man's law? It's important to understand that when we begin to walk with the Lord, we are going to be persecuted. People will say all kinds of false things against us. They will charge us. They will accuse us. And it will have no merit to it other than we just want to know the Lord. Don't get caught off guard by that. The Apostle Paul had this happening to him all the time. Paul knows his rights. He appeals to Caesar. And so Festus takes the easy way out and says, well, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you're going to go. 
But the problem is Festus doesn't know what to do. Verse 13, it says, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accuser face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. He's sharing all of this with King Agrippa and Bernice. Verse 18, he says, when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. I love this next verse. Being at a loss. (laughs) Don't miss that, right? Being at a loss. I mean, can you hear this guy? He's new to his post. He's new to the position. He doesn't know what to do. He's caught up immediately into a religious argument. And he, he admits it. Being at a loss, how to investigate such matters. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appeared to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. We'll look at that next week. Okay, the whole testimony of Paul before Agrippa. Fascinating. Festus had no idea what to do. He's way in over his head. The water's caught up to the nostril moment, right? He's in the midst of a religious argument that he doesn't know where to go. Roman law, you can't accuse somebody and charge somebody and convict somebody if there's nothing to stick. And there's nothing to stick. Catch that, because that's one of Luke's main issues here. He wants us to understand that Paul had done nothing wrong. Even according to the law of the Romans, he had done nothing wrong. There's integrity in this. But it's interesting when you begin to look at what Festus had to say. After all that Paul had been through, two years in prison by Felix, simply as a favor to the Jews, and we see how Festus is swayed by this uh, political correctness because he wants Paul to go up and stand trial in Jerusalem, asks him. I mean, can you imagine? Here he is, the judge, and he's asking the prisoner, you want to do this? (laughs) Somehow it's It's backwards. Luke is making sure that we understand that any of these charges have no validity to them at all whatsoever. Acts 23 verse 1 kind of captures this moment where Festus doesn't know what to do, Felix didn't know what to do, charges were brought against Paul, clearly none of them could stick. And if you remember two years prior to this when he had stood before the council after being Saved in effect by Lysias, he looks at the council intently and he says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Wow. Right? Can we say that? Can we say that? We lived our lives up to this day 
and we're able to have our consciences clear that we're right before the Lord. Let me summarize this a little bit um, in this way. Paul knew several things. He knows something about God. And walking through this circumstance where he's being falsely accused, where he's been held in prison uh, without any merit for over two years now, not understanding exactly what was going to happen, where he was going to go, but understanding that God is at work. Let me give you three things maybe to take home today. First of all, Paul knew that he was not in control, but that God is. Think about that. Paul knew that he wasn't in control. He had given up on that one. I don't need to, need to try to do this for God. I understand that God alone is able to do this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul writes this, which he will bring about at the proper time, and then he says this about, about the Lord. He, the Lord, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you think Paul believed that? I think he believed it. I think he recognized no matter who was in authority, no matter what was going on in his life, that God was absolutely sovereign over it. If the Lord wanted him out of prison, it would happen like this. He had already experienced that in Philippi when he was locked up, beaten with Silas. And what happened? They began to praise the Lord. The Lord sent an earthquake. And what happened? They're immediately freed. If the Lord wanted to free him, it would take place. It would happen. It wasn't even an issue. So if the Lord wasn't freeing him, if the Lord was continuing to have him be in this circumstance, then God was sovereign over it and God had a plan in it, even if Paul didn't understand it, couldn't see it, couldn't measure it, or verify what it was that was going to happen. It's totally sovereign. Do we trust the Lord in his sovereignty? And no matter what circumstance you're in the midst of, it's been filtered through the hands of the Lord. He may not have made it happen. He allows certain things. And some of those things are tough, but he allowed it. And do we believe that he's going to bring good out of it for us? Do we believe that he is going to glorify his name through the circumstance? The second thing, that Paul understood, and I think we need to hear this, God works through authority. God works through authority. Folks, I don't care uh, who it is that we want to talk about in the civil arena. The Lord works through authority. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Oh, does that hurt us, isn't it? We just, boy, we cringe, but we have a vote. Yeah, hanging chads. Anybody remember that? My goodness, Steph and I were down in Florida during that whole thing. And we were, <laughs> it was so funny. We're watching the news and we're watching the story and all the, the reports are coming in. And, and it was kind of like, well, this person's won. And no, no, this person's won. And oh, wait a minute, they're not going to give their concession speech yet because all of a sudden, and it just got longer and weirder and longer. 
And we were laying there on the floor. Finally, I'm laying on the floor. It's like three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm not going to work tomorrow. I got to find this out, man. I'm distraught, you know? And then we ended up moving up into Chattanooga not terribly long later, but the Supreme Court took over. You think God had his hand in all that? We, we can come up with story after story after story on this stuff. We got to get past the idea that we're in control, folks. Any, anybody agree with me on this? I mean, really, I, I got I to gotta say this is me too, right? That somehow we're in control. God is in control, and God works through authority. And we always understand, as Peter and John told the council when they told uh, Peter and John not to proclaim the gospel, stop preaching about this Jesus, they said, you decide, should we listen to God or should we listen to you? We understand there's a point where there's a breaking point here. And God's law always trumps man's law, pardon the pun, right? Oh, you got to wake up. Come on, you got to wake up. <laughs> wow, come on. Give me a man, just but you walk off here. <laughs> come on, it's funny. The point of the matter is, is we know God's law supersedes man's law. Always. But we trust the Lord in the midst of the circumstances. We trust the Lord. In verse 3 of Romans 13, he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Respect? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Thirdly, the Lord is faithful. The Lord had already told Paul he was going to Rome. You can go back and look at that. Paul's in prison. Paul has just been beaten I'm sure that he was worried about what was going to happen to him, concerned, praying about it, wondering about it. Acts 23, 11 says, On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Beautiful. Paul understood that the Lord is faithful. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he writes this, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Wow, what a beautiful truth. What a beautiful encouragement for each and every one of us. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on, whether we're attacked, whether we have false charges brought against us, we're not in control of those things. We know that God is. We know that the Lord is in control of the authorities. We know the Lord is faithful. We're his people. He's always working for our good, and he's always working for his what? Glory, his glory, the true identity of who he really is. And let me leave you with this, because I think this is important. Festus says something here that's really interesting to me. He's talking to Agrippa. He's trying to summarize it. He doesn't know exactly what to do with the Apostle Paul. But what does he say as a summary about the Apostle Paul? In verse 18, he says, When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement. Now listen, they had points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Two things. What was Paul known for? He was known for his stand 
on grace. And he was known for a stand on what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I think we ought to dwell right there. I think we ought to dwell right there. What do we want to be known for? Individually, collectively, as a church body, I think we want to be known for the fact that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, don't place yourself back up under a law, the bondage. Don't, don't place yourself back up under the tutor, that which taught us that we have a wonderful Savior who loves us. Let's be known for grace. And secondly, let's be known for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that establishes why we're even here today. And I think if we focus on those two things, and we begin to be transformed even more so by the Lord, renewed in our minds as we get into the Word of God, I think the world's going to take note of that. And we may come under persecution. We may have all kinds of things falsely said about us. But I think that's going to just squeeze us a little bit more in order that out of us, the life, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed. Are we walking in that? Are we trusting the Lord in the midst of circumstances? Are we running to him? Are we walking with our shepherd? Let me close with this. Do you like Psalm chapter 23? I love Psalm 23. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's become nearer and dearer to my heart. Uh, the older I get. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And he restores my soul. You need your soul restored this morning. You need your mind restored. The Lord is able to do that. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Good works, the things that measure up to what he considers to be right. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I don't know how a rod and staff comfort very well the way we normally define it. What he means is, is when I get off track, he uses that rod or that staff to hit me, <laughs> to get me back in alignment so that I can enjoy him and walk with him. He disciplines. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord how long? Forever. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, we have a great shepherd. We have a shepherd that loves us. He laid down his life for us. We have a shepherd that desires to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. He's in sovereign control over everything. He is the sovereign, the Lord, the King. He's able to work in the midst of even difficult circumstances for our good and for his glory. Do we trust him? And are we actively engaged day by day saying, yes, Lord, whatever you choose today is fine with me 
because I just get to experience you along the way. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.